0: Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs.
1: This is the podcast where we stir the pot and lick the spoon.
0: I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are starting in on our fourth and final homebrew showcase character. We have gone through our Orc Champion Fighter, our Kobold Thief Rogue, our yanti Pure Blood, Enchanter Wizard, and now... We are going into our fourth character, which is going to be a Hobgoblin War Cleric.
1: So we're definitely doing the Hobgoblin, not a Green Goblin, because Norman Oswald is still dead. Oswald or Osborne?
0: I think it's Oswald. Yeah, so we're going in with the Hobgoblin today. There's really not a huge amount that I would change personally with the Hobgoblin. They are a fairly well-designed race as far as the monstrous races go. I think Wizards did a pretty good job with putting together the Hobgoblin. I think that they did a slightly better job with the Goblin, though. The Goblin is the one monstrous race that I can look at and just say, yes, everything works just the way it is. I wouldn't touch any of it. There are a couple of little things that I would change with the Hobgoblin, but not a whole lot.
1: Well, the Goblin's kind of one of those iconic races for Dungeons and Dragons, and most fantasy tropes anyway. And then with Dungeons and Dragons, we look at the Hop Goblin, and you're looking back from your first edition, you know, the original D&D, all through now, and we're we're no longer in what I'd consider cannon fodder range. So like, your orcs, your kobolds, they don't translate to a player class well, because The monster class was something that you're supposed to throw, and they were supposed to be your lower level things you can kind of beat up on it. Now your hobgoblins were your kind of mid-range, middle management leader of the army type bits, so these are built a little better, so they translate from monster class to player class a lot better than our earlier classes did.
0: And I think we need to talk a little bit about the hobgoblin lore just to get a feel for how Wizards of the Coast puts them in and how they view the hobgoblin in the goblinoid structure.
1: So sit back and you will learn how a hobgoblin do. And I really wish, and I can't remember the gentleman's name that does the true animal facts, but I totally wish I had his voice. Say Frank. I wish I had his voice because I would love to see him do a hobgoblin episode.
0: True facts about the hobgoblin. (laughs) So the first and most notable aspect of the Hobgoblin is that they are a militant race. They are very martial oriented. They view martial prowess as being the most important factor and everything else comes secondary. They have a very strong code of honor. They are polite to a fault because for a Hobgoblin to offer insult to someone is an offense that is settled only by a duel that right. one of the parties isn't going to walk away
1: from. There was an old Conan quote from the comics that, for the life of me, I can't remember word for word, but basically it was saying that barbarians were more polite than civilized man because if a barbarian offered you insult, it was common just to smash his face with an axe versus in civilized culture you couldn't do that. I really wish I could remember that quote off the top of my head, but that really, really underpins the hobgoblin culture for me in my mind. So the hobgoblins are...
0: According to wizard's lore, and I'm just going to flat out say, all of this is going to be according to wizard's lore. Whenever we go to me talking about my hobgoblins, I will specify that. But from here on out, it's as wizards wrote. They are broken up into legions. So the tribes are referred to as legions and they have... A very strict hierarchy. I think there was, what, seven ranks from top to bottom, from Warlord all the way down to Soldier. And that's something that was laid out in the Goblinoid lore section of Volo's Guide, which is actually a really interesting read for me.
1: Yeah, Volo's Guide's got a great bit of lore for all of your monstrous races, which is always a fun read. Not having picked that up before, and really before 5th edition only, having like the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master Guide, a lot of these supplemental texts, are more than just stat blocks for different characters. There's a good bit of lore and storytelling in them. So if you've not picked some up or not had a chance to look at some, I would suggest trying to do that. Aside from supporting wizard, supporting your local game store, whatever you can do, there really is some interesting stuff in these books. And the lore in this case is Volus is full of it.
0: And even the stuff in the Player's Handbook for 5th Edition is far and beyond better than what was in the Player's Handbook for 3rd Edition. I actually pulled out my old 3rd Edition Monster Manual and looked up the Hobgoblin just to see and there's three paragraphs talking about, The entirety of Hobgoblin culture and you can't really do a whole lot of world building with that. It gives you some basic ideas but it doesn't really flesh out a lot of the cultural personality of the race.
1: Yeah Wizards has put a lot more effort into storytelling in this edition which I think is a good step forward.
0: So one of the things that I think we're going to be getting away from with ours this is yet another race that is Trade as being an evil race and for all of the reasons that we have already specified in three previous race episodes, we're going to be stepping away from putting the evil tag on this race. Now granted in lore they have a connection to the god and I'm going to have to look at the spelling or otherwise I'm going to butcher it Maglubiet.
1: That's better than I could do just reading anyway. That I'd have to put in one of the voice to talk type things and okay. see what Windows came up with.
0: Maglubiat is a god of conquest. The lore goes into talking about the origin myth that the goblinoids have, where this one god basically went on a conquest of all of the goblinoid gods, and the few goblinoid gods that remain are the ones that were not destroyed outright.
1: Now, a nice little bit further in Volos. as you talk about this, but the hobgoblins are a bit odd or a bit different than the other goblinoid races because while you have Maglubiet, who is the primary goblinoid god, the hobgoblins do actually still follow and worship two lesser gods, though they kind of do it almost in secret or kind of like on the sly, which is an interesting thing, and they're both obviously war gods, but the fact that they are or worshipping a Peden or a Naughty God, you might even say, is kind of interesting.
0: I remember reading that, and I cannot... Ah, there we are. Nomog Gaya and bargrivik
1: Because if you want to have a hard time saying anything, try to name anything in the goblinoid tongue. It, it's just...
0: Yeah, <laughs> it really is.
1: It, it really makes German sound like a soft, fluffy language. Like, it's up there probably with Klingon.
0: Nomog Gaia is the dominant of the two, and Bargrivik is his second-in-command, and it's one of those things where he's his second-in-command because they're the only two left. Yeah. It says, Hobgoblins don't build temples to their gods lest they displease Maglubiet, but the few priests among them do tend small shrines and interpret the body of legends about their gods. Nomagea's priests always wield his favorite weapons, a longsword and a hand axe. They are responsible for martial training as well as instruction in strategy and battlefield tactics. Progriviac's priests wield his symbol, a flail with a head dipped in white paint. They work as a police force in Hobgoblin society, making judgments about honor, mediating disputes, and otherwise enforcing discipline. That is an interesting thing because in none of the other monstrous races that we've covered, do you see a specific depiction of law enforcement of a criminal justice system?
1: Well, I mean, with this, where it's so martial and everyone has to fall in line or else.
0: And the rigid hierarchy of Hobgoblin society is very clear. You are expected to always obey all of the orders given you by your superiors, and your inferiors are always expected to obey all of your orders without question.
1: And so, yeah, that does lead itself to a very, quote, unquote" lawful society because it is so extremely rigid. So, yeah, at this point, you kind of see that. And even taking away, like I said, the good evil aspect of different things, it's very easy to see hobgoblins being kind of stereotypical, like Judge Dredd, the extreme, lawful, neutral. This is the law, and if you violate the law, then I am the law, and you get swooshed.
0: Now, if we hadn't already decided that we were going to do a cleric, with this hobgoblin an oath of conquest paladin would Would be be perfect for a hobgoblin and when i was brainstorming going into this episode whenever i was reading about the assembling of a host of a goblinoid host and how when you have a host you have several legions coming together and one legion is chosen to be the leader of all of the host And the warlord of that legion is the warlord of the entire host, and the warlords of each individual legion under him are demoted to general for the entire time that the host is together. When I was reading through just that whole power structure that they had, the thing that came to mind is the leader of this host needs to be an Oath of Conquest paladin.
1: That could be a lot of fun. We determined earlier, though, a cleric fits really well. A fighter or barbarian would fit really well with this race as well.
0: Less a barbarian, I think. Barbarians tend more towards chaos.
1: Yeah, that is true. Though, I could honestly see kind of breaking with stereotype, but if you had a barbarian, a hobgoblin, that kind of maybe broke away, and that's why it would be an adventurer versus part of a legion or a horde on its own.
0: That could work. And one of the things that's actually laid out in the lore Hobgoblins have an order of monks that act as spies and basically black ops enforcers that their job is to slip unseen throughout Hobgoblin society and put down insurrections before they happen.
1: That again could be Uh, a wonderfully fun roleplay.
0: And they're called Iron Shadows. It's basically a shadow monk.
1: Yeah. And again, that could be a wonderfully fun roleplay. If you want to be Jason Bourne, that's pretty much what you're going to want to roll.
0: Yeah, that would be really cool.
1: So, like I said, with the Hobgoblins, there is a good bit of lore. And the thing we have failed to mention, though, is even with these legions and these hosts, the Hobgoblins aren't just the leader of the Hobgoblins. They're the leader of all the Goblinoids. Size-wise, they're in the middle of the structure. They're not as big as a bugbear, but they've definitely got more in the mental department. So they're going to be the leaders. And they're, they're definitely the leaders they are a bit more beefy than your goblins. So that hobgoblin is kind of that leader of the group, but it's more than just the hobgoblin. If you came across a goblin horde, you'd have all your goblinoid creatures all thrown in together with the hobgoblin kind of up there carrying the banner at the front
0: that's a good point to make the hobgoblins are the leaders of all goblinoids so goblins and bugbears both fall under hobgoblins in the total power structure provided in goblinoids as a they are the most intelligent they're the only race that according to lore is by default capable of wizardry you'll end up with sorcerers and the goblins from time to time and if you have a particularly intelligent goblin, a hobgoblin wizard might pick them up and train them. Um, I that was actually put in here. Let me see if I can find that.
1: The Booyag, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah the Booyag caster. So, a goblin served under a hobgoblin wizard, stole a look at his master's spellbook, and learned a little wizardry by aping the gestures and words it remembered. The goblin can cast a randomly determined first level wizard spell once per day.
1: That's kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
0: And I like that. I like that the hobgoblin, they are the order to the chaos. They are the driving force that takes all of the untethered energy provided by the goblin and just directs it, funnels it into a purposeful direction. Absolutely. So.
1: Let's go ahead and hop into stats.
0: I think we'll go ahead and hop into the mechanics here. So for starters, ability score increase, constitution score increases by two, and your intelligence score increases by one. Uh, I was talking with James a little bit before the stream, and there is a change that I want to make. I understand that hobgoblins are supposed to be demonstrably more intelligent than other goblinoids, but given their leadership qualities... I really want to change this plus one intelligence to a plus one charisma. So, James, are you going to try and convince me otherwise?
1: I want to. I really, really want to. We just spent a ton of time talking about the leadership ability and how they are the glue and the underpinning of the sword. And that makes a wonderful, very strong argument that they should have that charisma as a plus one. But they are also tacticians. They are leaders they are an intelligent race, and again, they are not just go and smash things. They do think, they plot, they plan. So, and me personally, whenever I make a character, I really have a hard time sacrificing intelligence for charisma. That's just me. So, I like the fact they have that plus one intelligence. You can make an extremely, an extremely strong case that you could trade that for a charisma. I would almost be willing to leave that to the player and say you could take your constitution score increases by two and you can increase intelligence or charisma by plus one.
0: I was actually about to say that because their leadership prowess comes from their greater intelligence compared to the other goblinoids. But all of the intelligence and all of the tactical mind in the world isn't going to help you actually lead if you can't convince your underlings to follow you.
1: Oh no, they make books about how to be a proper leader all the time. That's totally using your Intel score for a charisma check. As a person who tries to do that very frequently, there is a way where you could learn, and it takes more than a plus one Intel, but you can learn how to, I don't want to say mimic, but you can learn to act body language. you learn how to read a crowd. And it's not an innate thing that comes from you. It's something you've learned to watch So, I mean, at that point, it is intelligence. Intelligence is knowing, like, where a problem is going to be so you can put out fires before it becomes an insurrection or a rebellion. So, I mean, you could actually think your way through a lot of problems that charisma would naturally alleviate. So, like I said, I could see either or. There's a time and place definitely for both in leadership, though.
0: But you have to have that force of personality to make people follow you. There's only so many tricks that you can pick up intellectually if you don't have that base charisma, if you don't have that well to draw from.
1: That's what the sword's for.
0: But if you don't have that to draw from, it makes it very difficult for you to express your leadership demands All of the knowledge in the world isn't going to help you lead if you don't have the force of personality to back it up.
1: Right. And as someone who naturally would say that, my charisma score is definitely one of my lower scores, like real life. That cult of personality is something I do find fascinating because I don't have it. And the way you can draw on people. So if you do have that cult of personality, leadership is much, much easier. You know, you talk about political leaders, your faith healers, your cult leaders. Even you know people that can lead like a rally or a group or just like an even like a nonprofit. There is something to people with a naturally high charisma score where people do just want to gather around them that you can't get with pure intelligence. So I really like I said that's a hard coin flip for me because I really do like the fact that the hobgoblin is a thinking race versus just a bestial flood the field with critters race. But I like the constitution too, and then letting the player pick intelligence or charisma plus one wow those birds are really loud right now i really like the constitution plus two and then intelligence or charisma plus one and anytime you can put a choice into players hands i tend to favor
0: right yeah i'm kind of upset with myself that i didn't even think of that before we started our conversation but i think that is actually a pretty decent solution to the problem that we're running into where we can't decide i think that giving the player a chance to decide that for themselves which one of these two attributes they would hold as being the more important the one that they would rather have a bonus to because if you're playing a hobgoblin wizard you want the intelligence if you're playing a hobgoblin cleric you might want the charisma
1: if you're playing a warlock you definitely want that charisma oh absolutely or, you know, if you want to drag out your Conquest Oath Paladin, then you really, really want the charisma. Really
0: want that charisma, yeah. I think that's a pretty good compromise, if you will, to just let the player have the opportunity to pick which one of the two they would rather take the plus one in.
1: I'm happy with it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So age Hobgoblins mature at the same rate as humans and have lifespans similar in length to theirs. That seems pretty all right. That would make an interesting aspect for world building. You could, in theory, have a world build come together where you basically have a human general and a hobgoblin warlord who are... Rivals? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Rivals would be a good word. I don't want to call them bitter enemies, but respected foes.
1: Yes, that would be awesome. Um, Like a nemesis?
0: Yeah, nemesis. There's there's the word we're looking for. They each command a garrison on either side of this no man's land. And they've each tried their entire military career... To best the other. And they both started on the field. They fought direct conflicts against one another on the field. And they both worked their way up through the ranks. And now they're both commanders of the entire force of these garrisons. And they're just a pair of crusty old men that are still trying, just trying to one up one another and just trying to finally put that last nail in the coffin and finally come out on top.
1: So you could have like a Eisenhower Rommel type dynamic going. That'd be really fun.
0: Yeah, so alignment, and here's what we were hinting at earlier. Hobgoblin society is built on fidelity to a rigid, unforgiving code of conduct. As such, they tend towards lawful evil. I don't see how adhering to a rigid code of conduct makes you evil. When you step back and take an actual look at the code of conduct, you can kind of garner where that's coming from, because you end up having a hierarchy of, you have hobgoblins and then you have the rest of the goblinoids and then you have the rest of the intelligent races and then you have all of your unintelligent beasts which is a very stark gradation between the different classes
1: so again with the evil which we're going to throw out because we made that fairly clear early on that we don't like but you're going to look at most of your conquesting races if you're driven by war for the sake of war and blood and you know blood for the blood god and all that wizards pretty much gonna slap evil on you pretty quick they're not slavers like your drow they're not gonna oh yes they they are they could be but not not as
0: goblinoids are definitely a slave holding race according to the lore that wizards puts out Okay, then I will recant that. It doesn't seem to be as pronounced
1: as it is with the drow, so I have missed that, or I just blanked.
0: That's primarily because they have this huge pack of goblins directly under them to do most of the grunt work. They will have slaves in addition to the goblins, and the goblins really like it when they're slaves because now there's someone for the goblins to order around.
1: You're right. And now that you mentioned, I do recall that that is mentioned under the Goblinoid or the Goblin lore. So, yeah, that is correct because they want nobody wants to be on the bottom of that totem pole. But any large conquesting race that's built primarily on war and not sitting around making flowers. And like you said, you know, if it's not studying the arcane and trade, then you're going to be evil pretty much.
0: Now, in my homebrew world, the Goblinoid races are natives to a jungle on the southern continent of my world, this jungle area called Hesk. And they live in what were the orcish colonies, the colonies for the Nameless Empire. And whenever the humans showed up and tore down the empire... A few of the orcs managed to flee to the colonies, let everybody know, hey, we're under attack, we can't beat them, and all of those orcs just up and fled deep into the jungle, and when the humans showed up, they found these abandoned cities, and the jungle did the rest, as the jungle will do for anyone who doesn't know what a jungle is or has no preparation for going into it. But in my world, the goblinoids and the tabaxi coexist. In these cities, they have built up a culture amongst themselves in these cities where basically the goblinoids control the defense side, the military side of all of this. They keep the cities protected from one another and from the outside races that also live deeper in the jungle who come out periodically, whereas the tabaxi engage in trade, they are the face of the city. They do most of the PR work, most of the merchant work. It's an odd coexistence, but I think it works decently well enough. But in my world, none of the races are depicted as default good or default evil because I decided that that was a dichotomy that I didn't want to impose. I wanted the whole gradient of morality across the world because that's how you get individuality so that's why I would not put an evil tag on hobgoblins because, if anything, most of my hobgoblins are lawful neutral. Continuing on, size. Hobgoblins are between 5 and 6 feet tall, weigh between 150 and 200 pounds. Your size is medium. So they are basically the same size as the shorter humans.
1: Even really, I mean, they're about the size of a human. Humans, if you look at a human stat, it's going to be about there. We have peoples that are a little over six foot tall.
0: I think human males, modern demographics, I think human males average at around 6'1", 6'2".
1: Uh, I thought I was 5'8".
0: I could be completely wrong.
1: The medical standard is always like 5'8 eight and 80 kilograms, which winds up being like 180 pounds. Just because we're taller than most, you know.
0: I, I guess. It may be my bitterness of never actually hitting six foot. I ended up a quarter inch short of six foot
1: so that's how i feel about like i was two inches short of six six and i was really upset because i wanted just to be an even two meters and done
0: speed your base walking speed is 30 feet that's pretty standard you get dark vision 60 feet this is one that i would actually start to push for changing this to low light vision
1: yeah that's understandable
0: because hobgoblins are not subterranean goblinoids. I'm perfectly fine with keeping dark vision on goblins because they're subterranean. I'm perfectly fine with keeping dark vision on bugbears because they're nocturnal. But hobgoblins, I think, would start to have that genetic drift where that particular trait isn't being used, and so you don't have the whole survival of the fittest aspect. You don't have the natural selection where the individuals who have poor dark vision end up getting killed off.
1: Uh, That makes sense. Now, we did leave dark vision with the orcs because they tend to do more night raiding, but they're going to be doing more raiding than an actual military formation legion type movement so i agree that dim vision sounds better for the hobgoblin in this case
0: yeah the orc tends to be a smaller group they tend to organize into tribes so you'd have anywhere from 10 to 30 at a time a legion of hobgoblins i think a legion was something like 500 to two thousand hobgoblins right. and yet yeah, they're going to break down into clans within that legion and tribes within those clans they're not going to use those terms they're going to use military terms for the different breakdown but you end up when you're a military race when you go on a campaign you don't campaign at night typically
1: typically yeah with the hobgoblins if you were going to run an orcish raiding party type thing then you could do that pretty easy tabletop you know with a couple of minis and that's fine when you start dealing with a hobgoblin warband, you're looking into like 40k type armies where you need that six foot by 12 foot table and about $400 worth of miniatures on the table.
0: (laughs) Or that's when you break out Matt Colville's strongholds and followers rules so that you can have your mass warfare rules where you, you end up basically assigning units to do tasks for you as sort of a macro view. You don't do this as individual units on a field so you're not going to actually put 2,000 minis on a board. If you do, you have a whole lot more disposable income than I do. But yeah, I think whenever you get to the full-scale warfare that you run into, in a story where you have a goblinoid host, you're going to end up running into more mass combat rules than you are the standard small-scale battles. What D&D rules are designed for. D&D rules are more designed for skirmishes, really, than full battles. But if you stop and step back and look at it from a strategic standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, like a hobgoblin would, they would have their army that would be marching in full view, that would engage an enemy army on the field of battle during the daylight. And when that fight is done and they pull back that night, they're going to send swarms of goblins after them.
1: They almost start feeling like the Urukai from the Lord of the Rings series, where they're not a full orc, they're not a full goblin, they're kind of that weird half-breed in between. They're definitely the leaders, they're definitely up front, but there is a little bit of exchange, there is some loss of... They're not the rubbery-skinned goblinoids that you kind of see, they're not the full orc. So, yeah, like I said, that's a... They're different enough that they'd be different. So yeah, dark vision to dim vision, perfect sense.
0: Yeah, I think low light vision for these hobgoblins will be a decent change. I told you we'd come back to it. Next up is martial training. You are proficient with two martial weapons of your choice and with light armor. This is one, again, I was talking with James before stream. This one ends up with a lot of redundancy because so many of your classes... Either already have armor proficiencies or have abilities which discourage your use of armor, which would be your monk and your barbarian, where you get to add your wisdom and constitution, respectively, to your armor class if you're not wearing armor.
1: That being said, if you wanted to roll a hobgoblin wizard, absolutely. You know, a that's... hobgoblin
0: wizard or a hobgoblin sorcerer, now you have an arcane caster that can wear light armor.
1: And a martial weapon. Both of those are nothing to sneeze at.
0: Yeah. So that way, now you can have your hobgoblin wizard that can carry a battle axe. And whenever somebody gets too close to him, he can hit him in the face with his battle axe.
1: That's a touch attack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I touch your face with my battle axe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but again, wizard and sorcerer are really the only two classes that... Don't start off with an armor proficiency, and they're going to actually get any benefit at all from having that armor proficiency. Every other class starts off with at least light armor proficiency, even the Barbarian and the Monk. Barbarian starts off with light and medium armor proficiency, and I think the Monk only starts off with light armor proficiency.
1: Though I will say, I think the Hobgoblin is the only race that actually gives you a flat, straight out, you are proficient with armor, which is an interesting...
0: Yeah, I can't think of any other races that actually provide you an armor proficiency. Nope, I take that back. Dwarves. I believe that dwarves start off with medium armor proficiency. Are you sure? I am looking it up because Nope, I take that back. That was a 3rd edition thing, I do believe. You start off with weapon proficiencies. You don't start off with armor proficiencies.
1: So yeah, I think I think the hobgoblin is the only race where
0: the Dwarven subrace, Mountain Dwarf, starts off with light and medium armor proficiency. That's not what I was looking up. I was opening the book so I could look up the Monk, because I couldn't remember if the Monk actually did start off with a light armor proficiency or not. Uh, no. So the Monk does not start off with an armor proficiency, but they do have unarmored defense, so they, when they're not wearing armor they get to add their wisdom modifier to their AC, and it takes a pretty stout set of armor to beat your wisdom modifier on a monk because you tend to put a decently high wisdom score on a monk or at least you should you don't have to you could have a monk with a wisdom score of four
1: that'll be a different episode of min maxing versus role play but that's a completely different episode
0: that is getting back to where we were most of your classes where you're going to actually need to have a martial weapon or need to have armor are going to give you at least martial weapons and light armor there are classes where this particular bonus really helps but overall there is a lot of redundancy to this ability i don't really want to change it because of how much it benefits the classes that don't get this as a default as we said specifically the wizard and the sorcerer but there's a lot of redundancy if you're playing a fighter you don't get anything from this if you're playing a paladin or a barbarian, you get nothing from this. If you're playing a ranger, I don't think you get anything from this. Rogue, you might. I think you get simple weapons and a selection of martial weapons. Let's see what else. Bards and warlocks. A hexblade warlock would probably get a lot from the uh, martial weapons proficiencies. I'm not certain because I... Don't have that page open right now. I don't remember what warlocks get. I think they just get simple weapons. I think so. Anyway, I'm rambling now. And now for the big special racial ability that they get. Saving face. Hobgoblins are careful not to show weakness in front of their allies for fear of losing status. If you miss with an attack roll or fail an ability check or saving throw, you can gain a bonus to the roll equal to the number of allies you can see within 30 feet of you Maximum bonus of plus five. Once you use this trait, you can't use it again until you finish a short or long rest. I really like this. This is a good panic button.
1: That is a great panic button. I really do like this as well.
0: Especially if you're getting a big party together. The bigger the party, the better the bonus.
1: So the next time we roll eight players on a campaign, can I roll Hobgoblin?
0: Absolutely. I think what we would need to do is run a Goblinoid campaign. That would be a lot of fun. So you would have... Two or three hobgoblins, a bugbear, and the rest are goblins.
1: But yeah, this is a really solid ability to have. I like this. This is definitely one of the keystones to the race to play. So yeah.
0: This is one of those things that can really come in clutch. When you absolutely have to make that saving throw. When you absolutely have to make that attack land. If you're only one or two or three points shy, this is... The ability that will let you just sort of fudge the role and make it work. Languages, you can speak, read, and write Common and Goblin. That's standard.
1: That is pretty standard.
0: So I don't think that we're going to change that at all.
1: So like we both said, the Hobgoblin as a playable monstrous race is pretty solid. And there's not a whole lot in there that either one of us would really want to change. We both do have something we did want to add. And I think we need to talk to it because I think adding both would be a little too much. So I'll let you go ahead and give yours, and then I will discuss what I was thinking after that.
0: Okay, so I had a couple of different working titles before I settled on Settle the Score for the name of this ability. As a reaction to being hit by a weapon or spell attack, you may order your allies to strike down the creature that attacked you. Until the start of that creature's next turn, all of your allies who can see and hear both you and the target creature get a bonus on attack and damage rolls against that creature equal to your charisma bonus minimum plus 1. Once you use this ability, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. I think I was planning on actually putting an area on the effect. I think I was going to go with the same area of saving face so So allies within 30 feet of you that can both see and hear both you and the target get a bonus to their attack and damage rolls against that target equal to your charisma modifier until the start of that creature's next turn, because the ability is used as a reaction on that creature's turn.
1: Right. Yeah, that sounds really good. I like that. You fleshed that out really well. When you first presented it, it sounded, I think you just wanted to give them straight advantage on an attack roll which I think would be a little beefy. That also pins back into if you want that charisma or Intelligence score way back at the beginning of the episode. So I like how that fleshes out. That sounds really good.
0: It also plays into the whole air of being a leader, being able to rally your troops, being able to convince your allies or your underlings to do what you want them to do.
1: Yes. And that kind of ties into what I wanted to add. And again, I like yours. I'm liking yours as you've edited it because it has a lot of flavor. But what I was wanting to add was if you look back in the Monster Manual, 5th edition, 3rd edition, even 2nd edition, one ability that the monstrous Hobgoblins all had was leadership. So they could actually, kind of like what you did, it was giving them an extra bonus to their allies' attack. So leadership per the Monster Manual. For the Hobgoblin is for one minute, the Hobgoblin can utter a special command or warning whenever a non-hostile creature it can see within 30 feet makes an attack roll or a saving throw, that creature can add a D4 to its roll. And again, I think with you pinning it to your charisma modifier versus a straight advantage roll, I think that works. But I do like the fact that you could bolster your troops as well to add to an attack or an ability check.
0: Basically, as a once rest cast of Bless... I mean, mechanically, that's what it is. I like that. But if you look at the stat blocks that it's in, it is specifically in the higher ranking Hobgoblin stat blocks, Hobgoblin Captain and Hobgoblin Warlord in the Monster Manual. The base Hobgoblin doesn't have that. So it's only the ones that are depicted as being specifically in the leadership structure.
1: Thus, the name of the ability is leadership, right. which makes sense. But that is something that has long been in the Hobgoblin lore, which I really like. And that's something we could actually possibly turn into a racial feat later on, which would actually be a nice addition to the Hobgoblin as well. So I think we're going to keep with saving face and then settle the score.
0: Yeah, I like that. I really do like the combination that you get there.
1: I really like how you rounded out settle the score. When you first dropped it, it was sounding a little beefy, but you've definitely, you paired it back a good bit while keeping it interesting and fun. And honestly, when you're rolling on the table, nothing is more aggravating than when something actually connects and hits you. So yeah, you want to drop that thing. So I it gives a good kind of venting when you're on the table. Well, you hit me, well I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you and everybody hits you. So meh.
0: It's reminiscent of that scene in most every action movie where the first time that the hero and the villain face off and the hero manages to hit the villain with something. Just a little glancing, wounding blow. And the villain points to the hero and says, Kill him! And all of the toadies turn their attention to the hero. And you just exactly. watch all the heads just turn and all the weapons ready. And then the hero has to turn and book it out. That yeah. was the feel I was going for with this ability.
1: Absolutely. Oh. So I think we've it out the race?
0: I think so. This ended up being a bit of a shorter episode just because there really wasn't a whole lot to change. The race in and of itself was pretty solid.
1: Yeah. So as much as you enjoyed our nice short one, we're going to go ahead and fix that next week as we uh, delve into the cleric.
0: Well, that's apparently you have something that I don't know about because (laughs) I don't have a whole lot personally to change on the cleric. But then again, I play clerics. So
1: Well, not so much to change, but much like the wizard, there's just so much you can do with the cleric. absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's...
0: I don't anticipate that the cleric episode is going to be as long as the wizard episode.
1: Potentially. We'll see.
0: Next time we're going to be going into the cleric, specifically the war cleric. I just felt like the war domain was the obvious choice for Hobgoblin. Absolutely. Being the martial race, I think that a good, solid war cleric would be... Just the optimal choice.
1: Being the fact that the two hobgoblin gods are war gods? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really? (laughs) And if you want to be specific, Maglubiat, the overarching goblinoid god, being a god of conquest, is also a war god. So yeah, the war domain just really seemed to fit thematically with the hobgoblin. I know that the life domain is the one that is in the free rule set the life domain just did not fit thematically with the hobgoblin
1: unfortunately did not and particularly since we're doing a monstrous race party we definitely went ahead and decided to take a small branch on this one so
0: i think that'll pretty much wrap it up if you have anything that you want to add commentary any Any homebrew ideas that you have that you want fleshed out, any world build ideas that you want some input on, go ahead and send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like what you're sending us, we might even do a whole episode on it. We really just want to hear from you to make sure that what we are providing you is what you want to listen to stuff that actually is helpful to you because we can drivel on about what we want to talk about all day long. And if you're not interested in what we're talking about, or if it doesn't help you at all, then it feels to me like we're just wasting our time. That's just me.
1: Again, if you like what we're saying, feel free to comment join us uh, under Common Taste. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also feel free to subscribe.
0: Thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCTHomebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowl. Again, thank you for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.